0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Well, back for the second time this week. My name's Richard Moore. I'm with Daniel Freiberg again. Hello, Daniel.
2: Hello, Richard.
1: And sipping from a Where Are We Lionel mug deigning to join us again on the regular podcast after his week of fun at the women's tour last week. Lionel Burney.
3: Hello Richard. Yeah, it was fun actually.
2: Bring you back to earth today. Why are you
3: drinking
2: from a mug at 10 to 8 in the evening?
3: I'm having a cup of tea. Oh my
2: god. It's 10 to 7 7
3: here actually, Daniel. Um, Incorrect. (laughs) You've got the time wrong. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> anyway,
2: oh. anyway that's where you are M- much more exciting is where rich Rich well, is and and whom he's been with
1: well i'm in bassano del grappa where we stayed a couple of years ago at the giro uh daniel in the veneto region in italy um and i'm here for the week for filippo Pozzato's new races three races um We've had the Giro del Veneto the other day. Um, the Veneto Classic is on Sunday. We've already covered the similarity of the names. And tomorrow is a first ever professional gravel race. And I rode some of the gravel <laughs> sections today. Daniel's screwing up his face. I wrote something no, gravel section no, with...
2: Just something else. I was screwing <laughs> up my face at something else, which I won't I won't mention. No,
1: okay. Don't bother with any pronunciation uh, lessons, please. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we're, uh, we were out with Filippo Pozzato and uh, Daniele Benatti, who, who is going to be announced as the new Italian coach, is he? At some, some point soon. That's the rumour.
2: Yes. And partly because, well, he's certainly the hot favourite, partly because... Pozzato, and well, among others, uh, refused or declined the offer.
1: Hmm, interesting. Well, um, he's still in very, very good shape, um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I was surprised. I mean, Strada Bianca, this is not because we're not talking here about roads that are gravel, we're talking about um single track technical little sectors of of gravel dirt roads that are not roads at all they're paths, so it's going to be a very interesting uh, race but he posato insists that it's it's the first in a in a in a journey and that they will grow from from here but I sense a bit of nervousness as well about it all, um, so we'll see how it goes tomorrow.
2: Ironically, because tomorrow's race is called La Serenissima, the very serene one, um, mm. La Serenissima. It used to be la, la Serenissima uh, Repubblica di Venezia, the, the very Serene Republic of Venice was its, the Venetian Republic's old official name. Hence, a lot of things in that region are, get, well take on this, this denomination.
1: And well, Pozzato seemed very serene, but also um, on his phone o- almost the entire ride. So obviously uh, dealing with quite a lot of business and things. <laughs> anyway, it was it's been fun. It's been fun. And and what happens here this week will be made into an episode of Explore coming up uh, some sometime soon. Doing a lot of riding, and uh, on Saturday I'm doing the Grand Fondo, the new Grand Fondo here with and Fabian Cancellara and I think Benatti again go? as well. Where
2: does that well, go? Well, it
1: comes, it comes through Bassano del Grappa. It starts in Cittadella where you and I, Daniel, met the American ambassador, didn't we, at the Giro last, this year, earlier this year. So it starts there and it comes through Bassano del Grappa and then goes up into the, the hills near here and does a couple of circuits and then back to Cittadella at the end. So, really looking forward to that. But, we're not here to talk about my Italian holiday, I mean work trip. We're here to talk about the Tour de France for 2022. The presentation was we need to talk about today. your
2: three week holiday in July instead.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, easy now. Uh, well, I was very disappointed not to be able to make the presentation in Paris today, um, but I was able to watch it, as I'm sure you guys did. Uh, the route had been long rumoured, I mean it had been pieced together uh, pretty accurately, but you know it nevertheless contains a lot of interest and intrigue and the the real intrigue as well today was that there was the presentation of the first ever route for the tour de france femme, the women's tour de france directed by marion russe who appeared on stage with christian prudhomme and presented the the new um a new race and it's a really interesting route too And we'll hear a bit later on from Ashley moulin Pasio, Who was there um, with her reaction to that first route And we'll talk a bit about that um, later on But I mean we should just get straight into the really serious business Which was any, any riders outfits particularly stand out to you Daniel?
2: Not especially, Rich. Um, I was slightly aggrieved, as I said on social media, that Nairo Quintana hadn't brought his lizard costume. Um, I mean, that would have been good, wouldn't it?
1: That would have been good. (laughs)
2: Yes, it would have been hilarious. He was slithered on stage. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty regulation fair, wasn't it? I noticed that the the zeitgeist dictates that ties have been dispensed with. There was a time when we, we used to see a lot of ties at the... Um, Tour de France presentation. Um, so, only one today worn by the defending champion, Tade Pogacar, who, incidentally, I don't know if you saw um, Chaps, or you, you probably have seen the quotes, he did a long interview with L'Equipe. Um, this morning where it was published this morning and we discussed last time in the pod didn't we Richard, it was the pod we did earlier in the week I think or last week and that well there could be a possibility of him trying to do the Giro in 2022 and you know would the Tour route be such that he might have second thoughts about doing the Tour de France but he said in L'Equipe that he will definitely be at the start of the Tour de France next year
1: actually saw his bike 2 days ago his Tour de France winning bike in the Campagnolo factory um but that, that that's my last reference to my italian trip for now um yes well he was last on stage ahead of the the presentation of the route and uh you I mean we we've known it was supposed to start in, in Denmark this year it didn't obviously um and it's starting there next year in copenhagen and three days in denmark which means an early rest day before stage four resumes in uh in cali um well starts in dunkirk finishes in cali but the the three stages in in denmark um an opening time trial which is not a, a prologue you know 14 kilometers long comparisons with dusseldorf in 2017 quite a long opening time trial um what Anything that catches your eye in th- those first three stages, I mean, we'll hear in a moment or two from Chris Jensen, a Dane who um, perhaps uniquely will be riding his second Grand Tour start in his home country because he made his debut in a Grand Tour in Ireland in 2014. And he's an Irish Dane, of course. So for the second time in his career, assuming he starts the tour, it'll be a home Grande Par, but anything in those first three stages in Denmark that catches your eye I mean the assumption we make which might be an uneducated one is that um, there there could be crosswinds I suppose because it's quite coastal looking
3: Well I suppose the first thing that came to mind with the Copenhagen start was Daniel Yu nicknamed last year's tour Nice Paris rather than Paris Nice and this, this tour will go from the Tivoli Gardens to the Rue de Rivoli I mean, not quite as good as Nice, right, Paris, so. but um, it will take in all of the sights of Copenhagen. The past the Little Mermaid, um, crying out for us to nickname a rider the Little Mermaid. I don't know who that would be. Who would that be, the Little Mermaid? Listeners, send in who should be
2: nicknamed the Little Mermaid. Sergio Higuita, <laughs> or uh, well, Ken- the most mermaid-like, the most mermaid-like rider I can think of at the present time.
3: And as you say, Richard, cross-windy because the second stage will go over the longest bridge in Europe, 18 kilometres long, Um, it's called, Richard, remind me.
1: It's known as the Great Belt Bridge, apparently, Lionel, but I think Daniel's got the Danish. You like a belt, don't you, Richard? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here we go. Oh, back in back in Flanders, I
2: noticed you sent me a picture earlier, and you I noticed that you were sporting well, you're always sporting a belt. Well, <laughs> anyway, go on. It was that
1: visible in the picture.
2: Extraordinary, yes. Yeah, I sent I
1: sent you a picture of me with Maurizio Fondriest, and you notice that I'm wearing a belt. Unbelievable. Yes,
3: strange behaviour, this, isn't it? Um, but yeah, the Tour de France, it starts on July the 1st, which is my my birthday, so I'm expecting quite a nice meal that night. And uh, Daniel, this this might be right up your street, but uh, the second stage starts in Roskilde, which is famous for the festival, the music festival, sort of a Danish Glastonbury, I suppose. And coincidentally, tickets went on sale this morning and sold out within hours, although I think you can still get day tickets if you fancy uh, seeing duo lipper or tyler the tyler the creator i'm sure that's the sort of thing that's right up your street isn't it daniel
2: that, that's well yeah maybe um the the world championship road race a couple of weeks ago went past the went past the site the location of belgium's biggest rock festival um, I forget the name of the place begins with W. Um, Lionel, you mentioned the Tivoli Gardens. Just a bit of a, a sort of offbeat, off-topic thing that I'll be curious about, not necessarily looking forward to. Those old enough will remember the raucous scenes that greeted Bjarne Rees in Copenhagen when he won in 1996. And he, um, the following day, I think it was, was sort of um, paraded or there was a parade for Bjarne Rees at the Tivoli Gardens. And it will be intriguing to see how the Danes and how Copenhagen deals with the question of Bjarne Rees because, you know, a lot of the enthusiasm for cycling um, we've talked before about how deeply rooted sort of cycling culture, professional cycling culture is in Denmark. And a lot of that stems, or some of it stems from Reese winning the Tour in 1996. And then of course, um, just over 10 years later, he, he admitted that those performances, that performance had been fueled by doping. And, you know, it, it's one of these sort of embarrassing standoffs now that the Tour de France has with some of the the illustrious and less illustrious figures from from yesteryear um yeah last year at the tour de France. i don't remember whether i I talked to you guys about it, but in Saint-Emilion on the penultimate day, there was an exhibition, um, it was actually an official Tour de France exhibition, it was the first time I saw the, the Tour de France ASO really confront the issue head on, and there was a, a board in this exhibition, like the black, the black years of the Tour de France, and Lance Armstrong's yellow jersey was there in a case, and I, I, I think they called him the Black Sun Armstrong. And um, then directly opposite that was a board celebrating... You know, all sorts of, of, of tour winners legitimate tour winners including including um, in that particular exhibition Bjarne Rees. so he was certainly on the roll of honour so that's going to be intriguing and probably quite awkward in the same way that Dusseldorf was slightly awkward um, with the, the shadow of sort of Jan Ulrich um, over that and um, the other thing is of course Jonas Vingegaard was second in the Tour de France this year and there's going to be a huge amount of expectation and I guess pressure on him
1: I was going to say, though, Daniel, that, you know, in a way, Reese has been swept away by this current generation in the popular imagination because you have, at the moment, um, such an amazing collection of Danish talent. And so I can see the Grand Depart being as much about them or more about them um, and about the activity of of cycling. a, A bit like London in 2007, you know, much was made of the fact that, I think, Christian Prudhomme said there are more there are more bikes than people in Copenhagen, and it's the most apparently the most cycling friendly city in the world. So, I think um, it will be uh, there will be an awful lot written and said about just how has Denmark produced all these um, incredible talents at the same time. And on that note, um, I, I spoke to quite a few of them at the Tour de France this year. One of them, Chris Uliensen, who I, I mentioned and asked him, because we we, we knew a bit then about the, the stage. He certainly knows about this this bridge, the longest bridge in Europe that's going to feature on stage two. So I asked him a bit about what we can expect from the Danish stages. Here's Chris Uliensen of Team Bike Exchange. I wanted to ask you about uh, Copenhagen next year. That must be something you'd love to do and be part of.
4: Absolutely, um, I think one of the proudest cycling nations is Denmark, um, you know, they, they really they welcome any bike race um, that is in Denmark, Tour of Denmark, which you know, I have the privilege of winning, is, it's always uh, renowned for its, its massive crowds, uh, good atmosphere and there's a strong sporting culture in general in, in Denmark, so, so of course starting the biggest bike race in, on home soil, second home soil, is, uh, would be massive, absolutely.
1: I was going to say, your, I think your first Grand Tour was on home soil as well, you know, in the, the Giro. So you may be in a unique position of having of, of being able to do two Grand Departs in two home countries.
4: Absolutely. I mean, uh, starting the, the the Giro in Ireland, my first Grand Tour was was definitely one of the uh, is one of the highlights of my career. It's I think everyone anyone you ask who did that race, they'll uh, mention that the crowds there were some of the best uh, they've experienced, uh, especially in the Giro. So uh, if I could get the chance to, to also, you know, have, have that uh, experience in, in the tour in Denmark, I think that would be quite unique, but um, yeah, it's a long way to the, <laughs> to the tour starts next year. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm mainly focused on uh, getting through this one. Um, it was supposed to be in Denmark actually this year, but because of pandemic and all that shit, then uh, it got moved, which I think will actually be better for, for, for Denmark, the race and the experience in general. Um, and then it's going to be some epic stages. I mean, the second stage goes over uh, one of the most iconic bridges in Europe. Um, I don't know if the riders actually know what, what that will mean. I mean, it's, I, I cross it r- often when I go visit my parents, and it's, it's, a, it's almost like a 25k bridge in the middle of the ocean. So that will make for some quite iconic images and uh, potentially very, very stressful, hectic uh, racing. Quite windy up there yeah it's i mean windy and it's actually it, it'll be a it'll be a climb um a drag and again it's it's uh, it's it's just it's a huge bridge i mean anyone has the chance should should look it up on the internet and then uh, i think it doesn't take much of an imagination to sort of uh, picture what sort of a stage that'll be
0: the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches And now you can wear the SuperSapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The SuperSapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159.
1: Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, SuperSapiens. We're very grateful to them for their support. It's continuous glucose monitoring that you can uh, um, check on through a a device that attaches to your upper arm and now you can check your glucose levels on your energy band as well as well as on your um, bike mounted computer or your telephone if you'd like more information on Super Sapiens go to supersapiens.com so that's Denmark done well I was just going
3: to Uh, reinforce what you said, really, Richard, because obviously this year's tour had a record number of Danish starters, didn't it? 11. And uh, you mentioned Vingegor as the runner-up this year. He will certainly be in a very powerful Jumbo-Visma team, we have to assume. But um, there could be a a really strong contingent of Danish riders. And I think, uh, you know, given that you've got to be about well, late 30s, early 40s, to really even remember Bjarne Reese's Tour de France victory. I think it will be a celebration of the present rather than, um, you know, sort of harking back to uh, an edition of the Tour de France, which is coincidentally echoed quite strongly when the race reaches the Pyrenees because we're going to Hautacam, where Bjarne Reese did his sort of uh, ridiculous, cartoonish drop back down the line when he eyeballed all of the rivals. Um, that were racing against him in the GC and and sort of gave them a bit of a look before powering off into the the distance. Um, But they are quite distant memories when you consider um, that there is an incredible generation of Danish riders, and and it will be a real celebration, I think, uh, in Copenhagen, not just of the tour and of their riders, but of cycling. Uh, My experience of going to Copenhagen for the Track Worlds, for example, is that uh, the bike is king in Copenhagen. So looking forward to it immensely
1: very much looking forward to it, absolutely the most northern start for the the Tour de France more north than Yorkshire the previous record holder in that regard Um, but uh, we move from there to the north of France, we have an early rest day to accommodate that and then um, we've got this stage from uh, Dunkirk to Cali but the real real interest in the first uh, few days back in France is the the cobbled stage, isn't it? Um, we were there last week, uh, Lionel. We uh, we dipped our toe in the Arenberg Forest, so to speak. We kind of uh, rode a little bit of it. It's, it's tough. I mean, some familiar sections of cobbles there, some not so familiar. Um, quite a lot, but not the most. I think it's nineteen and a half kilometers of cobbles, which is which is a fair amount. And I can foresee the usual complaints from riders and teams about about that and I, I guess having ridden there myself a couple weeks ago I understand that a bit more because you know when you're there and, and riding them you realise just how, how brutal they are and they will no doubt end some riders hopes um, but anything else in those first few Patrick well,
2: Lefebvre has already stuck his oar in hasn't he he's already said he, he doesn't approve of cobbles of I mean a, it's odd from him isn't it cobblestone sections being included yeah yeah slightly contrary
3: I mean, it's not as severe as 2018 when there were 15 sections. that were, And that came quite late in the race, didn't it? It was the day before the mm. first rest day, so the second Sunday. But I think it's tougher than 2014 or 2015 um, when Lars Bohm and Tony Martin were the winners. John Degenkolb won in the, uh, the Arras to Roubaix stage in 2018. But uh, yeah, certainly one section that we did, Tilloy, is in there. Uh, Richard so we'll, we'll know that one but there's quite a few that haven't featured in Ru Bay before so we'll be uh, new to well, new to everyone really
2: I believe a lot of them have featured in the four days of Dunkirk um, they were sort of tested out there but I mean just generally looking at this first week there is well it's very flat um, of course we started this year in Brittany and that gave us a couple of pretty undulating stages to kick things off. But I suppose just looking at the route as a whole uh, and also the first week, it did make me think, you know, there's been so much talk and um, including in that interview with Pogato and L'Equipe this morning about the new generation of riders and their different approach to racing. Um, has the route just in general become less important um, or has the the way this, the current generation of young riders, in particular, are riding, have they exposed the fact that, well, what they've always said and what the tour organisers have always said, that they lay on the route, they provide the canvas, but it really is up to the artists themselves to, to, to paint and design and to, to give us the race?
1: Well, look, ask, ask a slightly different way. You know, are, are there any of the GC contenders who we think... Would really struggle yeah i'm thinking back to the the the, the dark and distant days of a an eban Mayo you know or uscatel on masse where you would go oh cobbles that's disaster that's that you can count out Mayo from the overall well, but Of the GC riders, including the likes of Bernal, you don't, you know, you can imagine Bernal coping pretty well with these cobbles. Well, uh,
2: another thing I thought, Rich, watching the presentation today and just browsing some of the reactions was I kind of missed the days when you would get riders sort of spitting the dummy and throwing the rattles out of the prams at the the presentations of, of major tour route um, so I was thinking back to there was a Giro d'Italia I think in 1997 or the presentation of the 1998 race when Cipollini threw a strop and said that he'd need a ski pass for the following year's Giro that, that it was like a, more like a tour of Italy ski resorts than the Giro d'Italia but you don't really get that anymore I mean it's kind of I think it's sort of symptomatic of a wider phenomenon of riders being basically scared to speak their mind um, and that's partly due to social media or large. Uh,
3: yeah poss- possibly but I, I don't know I, it, I think it's a really interesting first week I mean if if uh, there are windy conditions in Denmark then we could see some absolutely great racing on stages two especially and perhaps three and then although you know flat by comparison to you know the, the mountains that stage from Dunkirk to Calais will be pretty lumpy because it it goes around the headland which has got a couple of quite testing uh, hills On the way, and I was quite surprised to learn today, while just looking at the route, that this is the first time that Calais has hosted a stage finish of the Tour de France. It's had a a few starts before. Uh, There was a team time trial there in 1994, which, um, in fact, Chris Boardman blew was wearing the yellow jersey, and he blew his Gan team to bits on uh, similarly kind of hilly coastal road so it won't necessarily be straightforward then there's the cobbles of course and then there's a finish in long we which is the same finish where Peter Sagan pulled his foot out on the sprint finish and, and still won the stage and, oh,
1: and, and we had a terrible meal we, that night. we did we Why had enough.
3: Simon mm-hmm. Gill the photographer who was with us um ordered while rather unwisely the ox heart which was it, it was enormous it was like Miguel Indurain's Ox heart. It was huge, and uh, it was stuffed with stuffed with unidentified still, meat. Still products. beating at
1: tw- twenty-eight beats a minute on his plate. It
3: really, really was. And so depressed by his meal that he got his laptop out and, and started looking through his photos, and realised he had the shot of Peter Sagan with his foot out of the pedal uh, on the finishing straight. But it was it was too late to get it out to the wires and so forth. So it sort of just stayed on his laptop. I remember just
1: compounded a terrible evening. It was a great night all uh, round yeah that was it was a remarkable finish that wasn't it mm-hmm. it was Sagan really in in his pomp and able to unclip his shoe put it back in and still <laughs> win this stage yeah. and Simon's sequence of photos showed the shoe coming clean out Sagan looking down trying to get it back in and um, and i imagine i don't i imagine it would be a similar the, the same finish perhaps which was a great it's the little same, uphill it it's it is. the same is finish that
2: with that, a harder yeah yeah, there's a, there's a, a tough, a very tough little ramp which wasn't on the route last time, which they've inserted yeah. just before that last. Does
1: that final mean they're count? calling it super long wee this <laughs> year? <laughs> uh, because that takes us nicely to la super Planche de belfi. Lionel, we'll come to the culinary highlights in a moment, but um, la super Planche de belfi, um is this just uh, because? Well, it's got the extra bit that we saw yes. a couple of years ago, um, where. You Know that I, I, I was kind of skeptical about the, the, the extra bit of gravel at uh Plaincy Belfi, but it produced a thrilling climax to that stage. And I remember, um, Al- Ala Philippe was in yellow, wasn't he? And there were, um, there were thoughts that he might lose it that day, but in fact, he rode very well. And it was, it was, it was a really interesting finale to the stage, just the final kilometre produced some quite significant splits between the top the top riders.
2: How many cycling supers can you name? Super Planche des Belfi, Super Bannier, Super Best. Super Best. Super Tuck, sup, Superman. Sup, sup, super super you. super
1: Super Happy. Super giz- Super happy. Super Super
2: legs. Super <laughs> Gizalo back in the sixties, I think it was.
1: Super good. I had super good legs today. Um but yeah um, <laughs> It's, well, it's a it's a word that has been uh, is, is sort of injected into lots of uh, phrases um, in cycling. Um, but, I mean, that's what it's called, La Super Planche de Belfi. And it features in the Tour de France Femme as well, which we'll come to a bit later on. But, um, I mean, that stage is very, I mean, that, that that second weekend is very reminiscent of 2012 when we had Planche de Belfi for the first time on the Saturday um Cadell Evans won that stage. The following day Thibaut Pino won a stage in the Jura Mountains which was a similar kind of stage and I've seen some reaction to stage 8 this year which will be the Sunday going to Switzerland again as well and um, that it's it, you know it's not super tough but that day in 2012 was kind of similar and because the previous day had been quite hard and Bradley Wiggins was in the yellow jersey and quite untested it was a super tough stage and and uh, you know at the end of the tour a lot of people said it had been the toughest sort of opening to the stage of the entire race
3: and Bradley Wiggins language in the press conference afterwards was super bad wasn't it
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> this one also the stage to Lausanne so stage 8 Dol to Lausanne also looks ripe for roglification if anyone knows Lausanne um the it looks so the race goes up from the k from the from the lakeside up into town um it's a, a finish that's familiar from the tour de romandie um well there's a time trial that used to go up that that little hill from uchi into the center of town and yeah it's quite steep a couple of kilometers quite tough and then the first week
3: ends with an aso uci loving doesn't it the the tour de France organisers having a stage start in Aigle, which is home to the world governing body, the UCI. So we'll all be popping into uh, the World Cycling Centre for, um, well, what will we be having there? Some fondue, maybe.
2: Chute, uh,
1: chute à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please.
3: That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom. On the face of it, Noom is a dieting app, but in the month or so that I've been using the app, I've found there's much more to it than that. I can feel my eating habits changing, and hopefully I'm building some sustainable habits for longer-lasting results. Because in the past, when I've tried to lose weight, I've done so by denying myself the things I like to eat for a week or a fortnight or a month. And then after I've seen a few results, I go back to my old ways and the weight creeps back on again. Noom doesn't work like that at all because no food group is totally off limits. I can still eat and drink the things that I enjoy. I just do so in moderation and within an overall framework which has a healthier balance. It's become really motivating to try and stay just below my daily calorie allowance, knowing that it will keep my weight going in the right direction. And one of the most motivating factors is that any time I do some exercise, I get half of the calories expended added to my daily Uh, food allowance so if I go out for a couple of hours on the bike I know I'll get half of the calories I've burned added to my allowance and that might allow me to have some dessert or some cheese or a beer but not all three now we all know the equation is that if you burn fewer calories than you consume you will lose weight but I'd got into some bad habits basically thinking that if I rode my bike I could eat and drink whatever I wanted and it just doesn't work that way So how does it work? Well, every day I weigh in and enter my weight on the app, and then I enter everything that I eat and drink, and that adds up, and I try to stay below the calorie allowance. And what is really interesting is seeing exactly what I was eating and how much I was eating and how calorific some of my choices were, and just subtly changing them, just either by reducing portion sizes or alternating the days on which I'll eat certain types of foods. It's not even radical changes, really. It's just small changes here and there, which have led to, I think, some pretty dramatic results. Well, what are those results? Well, in 33 days, I've lost 9.5 kilos, which is 21 pounds in imperial measures. And I'm really happy about that, because not only is the graph moving in the right direction, but I feel better too. I feel better on the bike, for one thing. And I'm intending to keep it up. I want to lose a few more kilos and get back down to a fighting weight and see if I can't give Richard a bit of a run for his money next year when we get to ride together again. If you want to try out Noom, lose the weight for good by going to noom.com cycle. That's noom.com cycle to get started today.
1: So we're on the second rest day already, um, chaps, and that'll be in Morzine I imagine, will be based there on the rest day. And we'll start in uh, Morzine for stage 10. Um, finishes at Mejev. Uh, don't know that climb. Daniel, what can you tell us about it?
2: Well, it featured in the Dauphiné, Rich, last year. That absolute crackerjack of a final stage of the Dauphiné. Uh, the stage was won by Seth Kuss. And Danny Martinez won the uh, overall on the Dauphiné that day day or he wrapped it up so it's it's a medium mountain stage isn't it I wouldn't call it a high mountain stage but it's one of those intriguing routes where um, a lot or a little could happen um just looking at the, the well the climbing that day is two hundred or 2,367 metres um, so that sort of bears that out it's only really a medium mountain stage overall chaps um, off the top of my head I would say that this Tour de France has about 47,638 metres of climbing and um, last year off the top of your head so. last year's was 52,000 <laughs> wow. I think I seem to remember 52,220 metres last year no, so
3: 5,021, 21, 21. No, it was tw- 24,
2: <laughs> 5,000, around 5,000 meters less of climbing. Um, this year but uh, but I think but as you said earlier does
1: does that make a difference
2: I, I don't think it makes too much difference and I also think that there were a couple of stages in the first week last year that featured around 3,000 metres of climbing they were actually pretty lumpy those days there was one in Brittany and there was another one later on had quite a significant amount of climbing whereas this year particularly the one well the, the cobbled stage and a couple of the stages in Denmark have almost no climbing at all
1: I'm obviously quite interested in stage 11 uh, which finishes at the Col de Grano uh, which has only been used once before in 1986 and it's a it's quite a short stage 149 kilometres, um, but go they got the Galibier as well it's a, it's a tough it's got the potential to be a really really uh, aggressive and tough stage but it's it's famous for being the least talked about but probably most decisive stage of the 86 tour because it was on the Col de Granon that Erd Zimmerman attacked and Greg LeMond marked him and that was the day Eno actually lost the yellow jersey, Bernard Eno that is, I mean everybody on that 86, about that 86 tour talks about Art Dues or, or even the Pyrenean stages where Eno um claimed all his time but it, it, was a, it was a sort of less less talked about stage but a very significant one and the de Granon was absolutely decisive that day neither of those two won Eduardo Shozas won the stage but uh, Le Monde gained a lot of time on Eno that day um, and it's I mean do you know why it's only been used once before Daniel um, wh- why is it so seldom used that climb
2: I mean I think there are some logistical challenges with that climb I mean it's obviously a dead end it's called a coal or pass but the road that goes down the other side is a dirt road and while well, there are a number of famous climbs that sort of start or end their journey there depending on which way you're coming from the Galibier um, the, the southern ascent of the Galibier starts in Briançon, and the Isoard as well
1: second highest ever finish of a stage of the Tour de France Col de Granol
3: and the echoes of 86 don't end there, do they, Richard? Because on that stage to the Col de Granon, as you mentioned, they go one way over the Galibier. The next day goes from Briançon to Alpe Duez, the other way over the Galibier, and then over the Croix Ferre, which is uh, the same stage as that famous Eno Le stage where they broke away together and crossed the line side by side, hand in hand. And Eno uh, was given the victory, wasn't he? Um, Well, his front wheel went over the line first, but I think they intended a, they intended a dead heat. The first time the tour has been to Alpe d'Huez since Geraint Thomas won there in 2018. Personally, I always like a tour without d'Huez. I know some people, uh, you know, it's not hipster enough for some, um, but I do enjoy Alpe d'Huez and uh, looking forward to going back.
2: Also, the Queen stage, if we're going purely on metres of climbing, this is by some distance the hardest stage, 4,423 metres of climbing. Um, Only two stages this year, over 4,000 metres of climbing. Last year, there were three.
3: Looking at the race as a whole, from the start to this point, Uh, very slim pickings for the sprinters really I mean two very good chances in Denmark of course Um, but if the wind blows and it all splits up who knows Um, the long finish was a sprint but it's not necessarily one for um, the purest of pure sprinters it's a sort of well it's a Peter Sagan finish isn't it because we've seen that before and then by the time we get to stage 13 which goes to Saint-Étienne I mean it could be a sprint but we're very much into sort of transitional stage territory then aren't we and uh, maybe another chance in Carcassonne as we saw this year where Mark Cavendish won Um, but I think it's a disaster not an appealing one really for that yeah it's not an appealing one at all is it
2: I mean in the the second week is absolutely brutal in terms of well every day offering some kind of climbing and week three isn't really any better apart from the Champs-Élysées there's a stage to Caor on stage 19 we'll get to that but even that has a climb in the back end, so um, as you say, Lionel, very very slim pickings indeed. And if any teams are sort of hesitating between a, uh, a team geared towards a sort of second tier sprinter that they might have versus uh, a team of opportunists who might get in breakaways, it will probably be the latter option that they'll go for. I, I would guess, um, looking at the sort of balance of of the three weeks. And in
3: between those two possible sprint stages to Saint-Étienne and Carcassonne, we've got the familiar finish in Monde up to the uh, the Monte Jalabert. We were last there in 2018 when Omar Freyley won and British fans will remember it's where Steve Cummings... Um, well he, he famously outwitted uh, the French favourites didn't he Thibault Pinot and Roman Bardet a, a, a really good finish up there and it, it always is a good finish with the climb and then the, um, the sort of false flat and the descent and then a bit more climbing up to the airfield there and then it's the rest day in Carcassonne the first of two possible cassule days so looking forward to that for sure
2: only two? Can we not have one. Can you not have one for breakfast on stage on stage seventeen?
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I say Well, I mean, in in that case, possibly six cassoulet. But I mean, let's no, let's not be silly.
0: The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
1: Well, mention of cassoulet. Lionel is a perfect excuse to remind our listeners that we are very proud to be supported by Science and Sport. And uh, if you'd like 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. Newer listeners might be confused by me mentioning Castellay and Science and Sport together, but you were quite committed a couple of years ago, Lionel, to the idea that. that that science and sport should produce some cassoulet energy gels which have n- not yet rolled off the production line
3: they haven't i mean still as committed as i think, I think to there are idea. i think
1: i think there are supply line problems i think that's the issue <laughs> is it's that, a global problem as long as line. that's
3: all it is and that they haven't stopped developing their cassoulet gel and uh, I, I think it would work quite well in a bar wouldn't it a cassoulet bar rather than a gel maybe <laughs> uh, but anyway
1: yeah uh, poten- potentially quite nice and um, you're going to be t- tasting the mm. uh, science and sport products for us aren't you over the next few weeks
3: already off the mark Richard I was out this morning on my bike and uh, I am using a different science in sport product each time I go out on the bike and doing a bit of a taste test because well we all know that the products have the energy you need to enhance your performance but the most important thing is what they taste like and uh, I'm not even being flippant because um, you have to be able to eat these things when you are riding and if you're competing when you're riding hard so they have to be palatable so I'm going to subject them to uh, to my my uh, taste test over the next few weeks
1: Great, um, and a reminder if you want 25% off all your Science of Sport products use the code SISCP25 at the checkout at scienceofsport.com but while we are on the subject of food and just before we get into the Pyrenees what are your culinary highlights Lionel of the next year's Tour de France well obviously the giant apart from the, the obviously the giant
3: ox heart in Long Wee. Um I've mentioned already <laughs> <laughs> I've mentioned already a fondue in Switzerland a genuine fondue in Switzerland would, would be good and uh, well the, the final week the two highlights really for me are um, the, the really inky red wine that Cahors is famous for and the Rocamador cheese which is I think really good it's it's uh, typically i think francois may correct me here but typically it's quite a young cheese but it's uh it's it's uh got a a a very unique flavor and uh itself is i think going to be one of the highlights the tour can't really go there unless it does a time trial because it's basically a, a town built up the side of a rock but it will look spectacular um but i'm jumping ahead we haven't we haven't been through the pyrenees here yet
1: we haven't quite got there yet um what about you, Daniel? I mean, any, any any wine
2: highlights for you? Is this a good wine tour? I mean, it's, it's qu- quite... Just generally speaking, it's quite difficult for the tour organisers to do anything radically different, um, isn't it? It, uh, it struck me today when I saw the route and in the... Well, already when we started to hear the rumours of the places the race was going to... There, there are a lot of familiar names, aren't there, in terms of towns, climes, um, and it's a very familiar sort of shape to the race, although it completely sh- sort of shuns the west side. Um, but, yeah, I, I generally enjoy the wines more as we get um, further south, Rich. And then Napalm mentioned the Cow. There's a lot of good stuff around Carcassonne, a lot of good sort of... Um, tarry spicy tobacco-y kind of red wine my my kind of thing Um, kind of looking forward to well i'm looking forward to seeing um friends i have in switzerland that make wine in the region of switzerland that we're going through Um, if you're looking for a sort of left field hipster and wine tie-in for those days then look up some of the the white sort of chasla and that kind of thing from from um, the french-speaking part of switzerland just before we
1: get into the, the Pyrenees stages, can I take us on a little diversion? Because it's interesting what you say there, Daniel, about, you know, the the tour is so wedded to a, a particular format now, which is it has to include the Alps and the Pyrenees, although it, it doesn't, but, but it kind of does. And it strikes me that, you know, Marianne Roos in her role can actually be an awful lot more creative and has to be because... Her race is, is eight days long. It cannot go all was, the way around France as the Tour de France traditionally has. I was
2: thinking, has. Rich, earlier, will, let, will anyone be using the epithet La Grande de Boucle for the f- the women's race? It's more like La Grande Ligne, isn't it? The big line.
1: Yeah, it's eight days long and, and she's not wedded to any tradition or history or heritage. Um, she doesn't have to include any particular mountain ranges. She can do with it whatever she wants. The only thing she had to do with it was started in Paris and that first stage is essentially a circuit race around the the Champs-Élysées as a as a race in and of itself as it was as La Course it was pretty disappointing and underwhelming as the curtain raiser for the new Tour de France fam I think it's great I think it's going to be good and Really, there's that overlap with the men's tour, which I think is is also going to work pretty well. One gets underway while the other one is is not quite finished. um We're straight into a new story uh, by the time we get to stage two. But can we can we talk about the Tour de France fan briefly just now? And we're going to hear from Ashley Mumford Passy with her reaction to the route because also from a culinary and and wine perspective, you know, goes through champagne. Antoine Lionel where you can awesome. get some delicious
3: endouillette. endouillette. I mean from Champagne, I mean, the Champagne stage followed directly by the endouillette stage. I mean that's from one end of the spectrum to the other in, in a matter of hours. Incredible.
1: What did what do you guys make of, of this route? Because this was, I mean it's, it was interesting the presentation today, the order of events where the um, Tour de France Femme route was presented first and, and you really got a sense also in the way that the, some of the female riders who were there came on stage with the men that there was a real effort it seemed to me made by ASO to include and to really you know make a big show of this race and make a big statement with it in the presentation which I thought was encouraging for the event.
2: I think what's really encouraging Rich is there's no sense of I don't get anyway any sense of reticence or reluctance on the part of ASO Um, they are doing this because they believe in it and they think it's commercially viable Um, people could argue that they should have realised that opportunity earlier and they should have built the church earlier Um, but I think they certainly the penny has certainly dropped now and they they gave the the presentation of the route all the sort of razzmatazz and, and sort of baubles that you know the, the presentation of the men's race has always had. Um, it, it didn't feel like any kind of afterthought or or um, you know did, or to have yeah. second billing. And also,
3: I mean, on the sporting sense, uh, finishing at La Super Planche de Belfey saving the best stage to last I don't then have to do the ceremonial Parisian stage because uh, that will have been done on day one and I I mean I don't don't know for certain exactly what I mean that territory across um, from Paris to the Vosges is going to be it's going to be lumpy but maybe not too selective so everything will hopefully come down to a, a stage on what has become a modern classic in the Tour de France, and so it comes at the end of eight days of racing. Rather than, if you remember Richard, when we covered La Course when it was on the Isoard in the Alps, it, it, there was a sense really of a, of it being a sort of a, an hors d'oeuvre Really, it wasn't. It, it wasn't a stage race. Um, whereas this is a proper stage race and um, the beginning of something that I think uh, has a potential to grow, but uh, I think finishing it with a, a real marquee stage like that is um, well, it's, it's going to shape the whole week, and I think uh, for the sake of the race, that's a, that's a good thing.
1: You absolutely uh, will not, especially with actually that extra bit, the super bit of uh, La Planche de Belfi, because the the yellow jersey will not be decided um, certainly uh, until that final stage. The other stage that's really interesting, stage four um, from Troyes, which includes those white dirt roads. I was in that region on on holiday this year, and you can see these um, white dirt roads which are very like bianca in Tuscany and similarly rolling slash quite hilly you know quite hard and there are four um, sectors of the the white dirt roads um, or the chemin blanc as they're called um, quite long you know 2.3 kilometers the first one 3.2 kilometers 4.4 and then three kilometers and th- this is something in which the Tour de France fam is, is been quite pioneering because it could well uh, be a precursor to the men's tour de France using roads like that in the future Um, so that's interesting and it'll be entertaining I think
2: yeah I think it 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 could well be and it might well in a very short space of time um, cause us to sort of look longingly at the at the women's race in the sense that they will go to places that on the face of it are possibly more interesting because they don't have the same logistical constraints they're not constrained by history in the same way and rich you know when the Vuelta finished this year in Santiago de Compostela I think we mentioned it on the podcast but we've often maligned the fact that the tour is constrained by this tradition of going back to Paris and we've we've sort of speculated at times about what would be a a good alternative to that I don't think there are any realistic alternatives because I think the tour is very wedded to that grand finale on the Champs-Élysées but you know I mean maybe listeners could suggest um, you know write to us on social media what would be other good places to finish the Tour de France Santiago de Compostela had that fantastic symbolism of it being the what's the end point of the Camino de Santiago but we felt haven't we Rich that finishing in places that really can feel as though they've been taken over by the tour which is not the case in paris it feels like it's one of many things happening on that day in paris um but that would be would be nice if the tour could colonize a city or a town or a place for one day
1: well i've seen some divided reaction to uh the first tour de france fam route on social media typically but i think from what i've seen of the riders they seem happy uh with the route and in, quite inspired by it. One rider who was there is Ashley moving Passio of SD works. I've spoken to her quite a lot about this over the last few months. Cause she was involved in a lot of discussions around this race. And she's been clear that she wanted uh, a proper mountain. And I think in La Planche de Belfi, it's La Super Planche de Belfi. She's got that. And um, she sent me a message today after the presentation with her reaction to this first route.
0: Um, yeah i'm super excited about uh, the route Um, it actually exceeded my expectations Um, i think they've done a really good job of creating a really balanced uh, tour de france femme so there's something for everyone Um, there's sprint stages there's long stages there's gravel there's short punchy climbs as well as mountains Um, and then yeah i think the the queen stage on the final day up the super planche des bells fully. I hope I <laughs> said it correctly. It's quite a mouthful, uh, but I think that's going to be really, really exciting, and I think it's going to keep, um, you know, spectators really on the edge of their seat, and I I would imagine um, that the yellow jersey will only be des- decided on, on the final day. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a great show for women's cycling, uh, for sure. Um, the women's peloton is, is going to, take advantage of this amazing opportunity and do our best to make it exciting for the fans to watch and yeah it just feels really um, yeah it feels kind of surreal to be part of everything um, you know you really realize now having been part of the proper Tour de France and even being at the Root presentation you realize that we really have been on the sideline for all of these years and now finally it does feel like we're really part of the show already so being at the the launch was really cool super special it was nice to be with swift as well um who are of course very excited themselves and obviously doing great things for women cycling so yeah i think we've got you know great momentum and women cycling is is certainly headed in the right direction and this is going to give it an extra nudge so yeah i'm really excited
1: that was actually moment um... pasio so with the men's Tour de France, we're going back in time here because that was Tour de France fam, back into the third week of the, the men's Tour de France and we're in the Pyrenees, um, Carcassonne for the rest day, which is always a nice place to be on a rest day. Uh, we've had a couple of rest days there in the past. Um, and I've already booked a hotel, by the way, Lionel. That Lovely. was busy uh, earlier doing that. Um, what of the stages uh, coming up after that um Daniel. Uh we've got a finish in Foi, that'll be more castellay peregud uh, and Otacam, as you said, which is perhaps the big one.
2: Yeah, I mean in my memory at least, the stages that are finished in Foi or thereabouts have always been slightly anticlimactic. Um we've had a couple of stages that have gone over the Mour de Pegu uh, and Um, a very steep narrow climb there was the infamous stage in 2012 wasn't it where there were tacks on the course and the race had to be neutralised was it 2011 or 2012 Um, 12 12. but so I you know that that looks like it could be an interesting stage on paper but in reality it could also turn out to be less interesting than we hope and then the next two are real kind of blockbusters Um, the the Aspin and the Ansesan, we've not seen them together before because they pretty much do the same thing: go from the same valley to the the same valley. Um, but they're they're back to back on the route, and then two hard climbs. Well, it's the Perrault is the finish, really, but um, it, it's kind of super, the super Perrault because it finishes at Perrault Um And then Autocam, which has this sort of heritage in the Tour de France, this history that Lionel alluded to earlier in 1996, famous for Biana Reese winning there, also famous for an absolutely thermonuclear Lance Armstrong performance in 2000, which didn't bring him a stage win, but um, it pretty much ended that year's tour as a GC contest. And then in 2014, as well we remember Vincenzo Nibali winning there in the yellow jersey in well, what was already quite a one-sided battle for the general classification, he sort of wrapped things up there, so the Pyrenees well there's there's plenty there for everyone to get their teeth into, I think generally um, Tadej Pogaccio will be pretty p- pleased looking at the, the route today um, possibly more so than Primoz Roglic um, if we we are assuming that they're, they're going to be the two outstanding contenders because there are some quite long climbs, and you know Roglic has performed well on long climbs in the past. But I think most people believe that Pogaccio is more of a pure climber of those two, and well, time time trialing. There's slightly less. There's f- I think four kilometres in total less time trialing um, this year. You're
1: always very um, attuned, Daniel, to the elevation and um, but also the the altitude um and you know called the Grano mentions the, the the second highest ever finish for a stage but you know is the plus 2000 meter are the plus 2000 meter climbs significant you know well we we look towards colombia and bernal being perhaps better in in those stages i mean we remember this the tour that he won in 2019 where he seemed to get get a bit better in that third week.
2: Well, there are two uh, two ascents of the Galibier, um, so we'll go over both ways on back to back days in the Alps, and then the finish of the Col du Grenon, um, as you said, Rich. But otherwise, n- not too much. Um, there's no ascent of the Tourmalet, which is unusual for the Tour de France. We go over there most years. The Obisk is less than 2,000 metres so yeah there's nothing uh, really of note on that score in the Pyrenees Um, uh, there's been some interesting news well this is a bit of a becoming a bit of a saga isn't it Egan Bernal and his contract well a saga, any of you pay very close attention to social media and you know the tiny amounts of information that, that come out of Ineos um, Grenadiers and Bernal's entourage the, the latest news or hints are that um, Bernal might now indeed not only stay at Ineos Grenadiers but renew his contract um, I alluded to that weeks ago and then and then there were stories that surfaced that Bernal wasn't very happy and might even try to leave the team this this winter um you know whether the two things are connected Bernal possibly getting a renewal and that story um is up to you to decide knock
1: me over knock me over with a feather Daniel extraordinary that um after reports appear in the press about him being unhappy at Ineos and linked with the move elsewhere Yeah, he, coincidentally, so coincidentally around about the
2: time when Tade Pogacar yeah, signed a further we presume quite lucrative renewal at UAE mm. what a coincidence yeah,
1: really strange just, um, just before we I better just
3: uh, pick up Daniel's uh, lack of knowledge of James Bond films. I mean, I've I've never knowingly watched an entire James Bond film ever, but I have used the internet to um, just confirm that uh, Peragude was <laughs> featured in the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997. And James Bond, uh, because a different actor plays James Bond, apparently. Um I'm oh being facetious. I'm being facetious. Gonna, but it was this Pierce Brosnan. Is gonna-
1: <laughs> anyway, um, another talking point is the lack of long stages. Only one stage over two hundred kilometres. I mean, shorter stages have become in vogue, haven't they? They they have tended to produce more exciting racing. But does the does the race lose something by not having these kind of marathon stages that 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 do form part of the history of the tour? You know, it's always been whether something happens on them or not. It's part of the part of the the, the, the the challenge of the event is the the, the, the endurance aspect, I suppose. And um, having shorter stages, which seems to be the way it's going, uh, kind of moves it a bit further away from its history.
2: Well, Rich, I'm always inclined to think that, well, to, to prefer shorter stages. Um, I haven't seen that much evidence to suggest that an accumulation of long stages really makes too much of a difference in the, in the long run on a Grand Tour. But it's worth mentioning that one of the more spectacular stages of this year's Tour de France, the 2021 Tour de France, was the mammoth um, 249 kilometre stage 7 to Le Creusot, which Matej Mohoric won. Um, And that day, you know, what we usually say about long stages is is that people wait and people are scared and they're intimidated by the length of the race. Well, that day, it all kicked off very early, didn't it? And there was certainly no fear on the part of the likes of Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel.
1: And certainly length is not a barrier to other races being very exciting. Witness the recent World Championships or indeed paris Bay but, but a one-day race is very different, of course. And the reason it doesn't kick off like that generally in these long stages is because it is a three-week race. But there's always the, the potential to do that. And if a team wants to take it on, a rider wants to take it on, then you know it's 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 another kind of opportunity, isn't it? We, we haven't mentioned the time trial, I mean the penultimate day time trial, a very long time trial, 40 kilometres long by today's standards and pretty challenging at the end, pretty lumpy and as you say Lionel with that quite a, a quite a climb at the finish as well um, to Rocamador um, but it's a gamble isn't it because if as happened this year GC's pretty much done and dusted, that can be anticlimactic Um and I guess what we all hope for is that the race is not decided by then and that what we have is, is you know if if the race is still in the balance then that stage and that finale in particular could be really really exciting like La Plange de Belfi was two, uh, well last year
2: Yes, Richard, it should be really spectacular. I'm just looking at it actually on Vela Viewer. Um, the last kilometer, as you say, it's about 11%, or um, there is a sort of 11% section from 1.5k to go, and it goes up through well, into the sort of rock face, into the caves, through a tunnel, and um, yeah, it will be very, very photogenic, telegenic.
3: I think i might have ridden it on a french cycling holiday that i worked on as a tour guide i mean no sniggering here at uh, the thought of me guiding tourists around rural france but uh, in a past life i did spend a few summers doing that well was one funny of my favorite you should mention stops. that
1: funny you should mention that lionel because um we're going to wrap up this episode now but we have to plug a forthcoming episode, Friends of the Podcast episode. Do sign up as a friend of the podcast at the cyclingpodcast.com because coming very soon is introducing Lionel Burney, which you tell us about that, among other among lots of other things. It's a it's a deep dive into Lionel <laughs> Burney. Yeah. Snorkels,
3: snorkels say. and some underwater breathing equipment necessary.
1: <laughs> it's like more like caving. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Oh, I don't okay. know why. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting. Listen, that will be released for Friends of the Podcast soon. We've got my recent Flanders special out there now for Friends of the Podcast. Sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com. Lots more coming as well, including our Tour de France diaries from last year and this year. Um, a double header of Tour de France diaries. That's coming up too. But we should wrap things up for this week, chaps, after two podcasts this week. We'll be back resuming normal service again next week but before we go we've been looking forward to the Tour de France next year who's going to win it Daniel Pog <laughs> I'm joking obviously Pog. I'm joking
2: Pog um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an awful lot of talk isn't there about Eddie Merckx and him anointing Tade Pog I don't think Eddie Merckx Daddy is going to win it no the new Eddie Merckx
3: (laughs) well into his 70s
2: (laughs) Eddie Merckx Eddie has got form for this in just before the 1997 Tour de France which Jan Ulrich won Eddie Merckx said Jan Ulrich is going to be the, the rider of the century and he's going to eclipse my achievements didn't work out wow
1: didn't work out anyway that's all for that's all for this week thank you very much Daniel
2: thank you I think
1: thank you Lionel thanks Rich you've been listening to the cycling podcast with lionel Burney, daniel freeb and richard moore to become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter go to thecyclingpodcast.com our theme music is by glass Pear, and this episode was produced by will jones